0: Hello, come on in. You're early. Well,
1: you you can watch us. Oh, uh,
0: waiting for Val to regain control. Over
1: sorry, the, I walked through the main door up there and I could
2: hear you. <laughs> it, did you?
3: That's through? where the did fun shows is being produced. I'm, I'm I'll just drawing, follow my ear. I'm the right Story direction. of my life. <laughs> I'm Todd Lyons.
2: I'm Natalie Crandall. I'm Valeria Sosa.
3: And I'm Itzneli Liberté. And this is the Innovate on Demand podcast. How do you hire the right person for the job? In our federal public service, the conventional method demands that applicants use a rigid format, using specific keywords to map their education, skills, and experience onto a defined list of essential and merit criteria. Canada's free agents went another way, assessing applicants against a set of behavioral characteristics to great success. Our guest this episode says that whatever process we try to implement, in the end, It all comes down to first impressions.
0: Welcome, Etienne. Uh, Etienne, before joining the public service, you worked in the private sector for a startup during the peak of the internet bubble. That's a really interesting thing. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what kind of innovation might have been going on at that time?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, those were crazy days. Um, It was 2000 when I joined the company. The company itself used to be a business that was in the uh, CD-ROM industry at the time, but internet was uh, picking up uh, steam and uh, the company had shifted its activity towards uh, building websites. But these were still relatively early days for the internet. And what this company was producing were websites that allowed the owners to edit themselves the content without any HTML knowledge. Nowadays, we take it for granted. We, we have bl- uh, platforms such as uh, Blogger or um, WordPress that everyone uses. So we're, we're, we're familiar with the WYSIWYG tool. But back in 2000, my teams were coding the WYSIWYG tool that allowed people to edit. So it was it, it was a lot of work, but it was pioneering work. Uh, one of the most exciting projects uh, that I worked on was actually my first project that I ever managed. It was a, uh, a soccer portal. I'm back in So that was 2000. So it was a year of the Euro 2000.
2: As an Argentinian, you've peaked my I, interest.
1: I, I <laughs> figured. <laughs> and uh, the soccer portal itself was in two languages, English and Spanish. Uh yeah. we had our, our, the team was spread on four different continents. Uh it was really exciting time. And I remember in the month of July or August 2000, an article coming out in a internet magazine or publication of the of the days uh, that did the ranking of the most visited websites that summer, and our portal was number 54 in the entire world, which for for June 2000, it's crazy. Uh, um, and 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 then there were other type of innovation project that that were starting to pop up one that was also that we were all very eager to work on was some a deal with uh, the Phoenix Suns the the basketball team where someone had the idea at the time to Sorry um, you said the word Phoenix and I The Phoenix Suns <laughs> There was a Not collective shudder around the room <laughs> Sorry, and the continue. idea of uh, the team owners was to uh provide handheld device to the crowd in the in the arena so they could interact uh, during the game with uh, surveys on the screens or maybe even order food for, from their seat. Uh, we get, they were big partners in that. I think Lucent Technology was involved. They were providing the, the devices. Uh, our, our, our business, our company were, was um, developing the app. Essentially, for the interface, for uh, for for the service. I bet so, you called
0: it an application back then,
1: though. Oh, actually, I I, I can't remember what we called it, but oh, sure, the days. But actually, what I like about that story is that um, nowadays, when we think about the idea of giving a handheld device to twenty thousand people in an arena so that they can interact, and then the people hand back their device at the end <laughs> of the game. <laughs> It makes no sense, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but there was something about the idea that, uh, was visionary and that was the, the understanding that, yeah, we're, we're, the, we're coming close to the day where everyone will be, will have a small computer in their hands and will be able to interact in real time and order food that will come to their seat, wherever they are. And Turns th- out the future is here. <laughs> <laughs> so those were fun days. Yeah. Can I ask Very you, cool. what were
2: you, uh, what were you trained in?
1: My project management. Okay. yeah, Yeah, okay. master's degree in project management, yeah. Mm.
0: So that was in 2000. You actually joined the Federal Public Service in 2003. So what what would that transition have looked like for you uh, as far as innovation goes?
1: It was, a, at the same time, uh, very smooth in the sense that there was not much challenge. At the same time, I was a bit <laughs> dumbfounded by what I <laughs> saw in the public service. I, my first job in the public service was for the Translation Bureau. Uh, they had a unit called the Technolinguistic Services, which was basically leveraging technology to improve translation. Uh, and they were basically developing websites. They had developed a little system through a database that allowed to simultaneously uh, publish French and English content for the government website, which which was original. It, w- it was well thought, actually. So uh, because of my web development background, I, I got there thinking that this would be a fun challenge. But what I discovered is that the teams were about the third of the size of a team I used to manage. the budgets like the largest project I ever managed over there was one twenty fifth the size of my largest project in the private sector, and uh, the technology was for the most part about five years behind what private sector was using <laughs> so uh so that so that was the transition though. Again, if we're, uh, we, if I uh, take a uh, innovation lens, uh, there were some cool projects happening at the time over there. One that I, that I remember made me, got me really curious and excited was, um, at the time the auditor general had just uh, audited Job Bank, uh, the, the job website that uh, ESDC was managing or HRSDC at the time, can't remember. And, uh, the quality of the translation of the job posters was absolutely terrible, terrible. It was an embarrassment. So, uh, our unit was tasked with improving the quality of, um, of the translation. And the assumption going in was that technology is going to resolve all the problems. So, uh, I had very qualified people in my team, all technolinguists, uh, were very skilled at automatic translation software. So we, 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 we crafted a, a, an experiment, tested a few hypotheses. And what we quickly discovered is um, just by running the original job description, the text in a, a word corrector, uh, like a Microsoft Word, improved the quality of translation by about <laughs> 65%. So just fixing the mistakes and the grammar and the spelling solved sixty five percent of the problem. So you mean
2: quality control?
1: <laughs> and and we didn't need to buy or develop any technology. Just Word could do it. Like the default dictionary uh, could do it. Huh. Then another thing we we looked into uh, was oh we we applied uh, the rules of plain language to the original text. And again we tested uh, nine or ten basic plain language rules and measured the impact that each rule had on the quality of the translation and there were two two rules uh the first two that also created a 20% improvement in the quality of the translation and those rules were use short sentences and use a, an active voice so subject verb complement no don't say uh, the the apple was eaten by todd say todd, todd ate, ate the, the apple, apple. And the translation will be much better quality. Mm. Um, so again, we didn't develop anything and yet there was an improve, instant improvement of about 85% in the quality of translation. Mm. And every additional rule that we implemented improved resulting maybe a one or 2% improvement. So there was really interesting work going on at that time over there. Mm.
0: Very interesting. Sounds like you have a, a longstanding relationship with data and, uh, and testing. <laughs> Shortly after you joined the public service, actually, you stepped into the HR world. Um, this is very much where my personal area of interest lies. So I'm very curious to know uh, if there was any innovation going on in that sphere back in those days.
1: I stepped into HR by accident. Um, I was working for an ADM uh, at Pusher Mac, so the Public Service Human Resource Management Agency of Canada. <sighs>
0: That would be uh, what OCRO was, I believe, Which is now OCRO, yeah. (laughs) But at the
1: time, it was a a newly created separate agency. And they were working on the Public Service uh, Modernization Act. And that ADM was tasked with implementing the Public Service Employment Act. And my role on the team was to build capacity for managers to do staffing under new legislation. So I did that for almost a year, which was an amazing experience. And two weeks, literally, after the implementation of the PSA. I landed on the West Coast in Vancouver, actually doing staffing, so now living with the consequences of my action <laughs> 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 so working at uh fisheries uh, and Oceans, their law enforcement branch, initially, the mandate was very specific. it was to resolve a long standing staffing issue that had been present for about seven years, but my mandate quickly. Increased beyond that. And before I knew it, I was looking at all the aspects of people management. So employee engagement, performance management, uh, recruitment, name it. And I did that for five years, and it was an amazing experience. Now, uh, to the question, was that innovative? Well, the Public Service Employment Act, I thought, was a fantastic little piece of legislation. I think it's a really well-written piece. So the people who worked on this were smart people. And uh, I remember until 2009, 10, sometimes I-, I was amazed by how the people who wrote the act were able to anticipate years in advance problems that might right. happen, and the act Really took care of these problems before they, they happened. So uh, it, th- there were some great ideas happening there. As far as my practical, uh, application of the Public Service Employment Act or across government, I cannot say there was in- anything innovative happening. The one benefit that I had was that I had never done staffing before. And therefore I had no preconceived ideas of how it should be done. The one thing I knew is that I want to treat it. I wanted to treat employees the way I would like to be treated as an applicant on a job process. And that influenced much of the things that I did. Um, basically what I did when I approached staffing and people management, I simplified everything that I could. I got rid of processes and requirements that were not needed. For example, when people would apply on my process, no resume was required. And I made it explicit on the poster, don't send in a resume, don't send a cover letter. Uh, the the act didn't mandate it. Uh, there was no sp- policy requirement for that, so I didn't need it. Uh, so I simplified all the processes where I could, and uh, then the rest was just having a very user centric approach to everything, and putting always putting myself in the shoes of the candidates, the applicants, and try to look at what was happening from their perspective. So being very responsive to communication, like no question left unanswered for more than twenty four hours.
0: What?
1: Yeah. <laughs> It was about getting rid of this idea of the black box Mm -hmm. that 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 um, generates mistrust in the system and what's going on. So being as transparent as possible, every inf- piece of information that I could anticipate that I knew I would share openly with the people. And I did that in all the aspects of my job. And um, this will be a topic for another podcast one day, but the Public Service Employee Survey really showed that it made a huge difference on the, the employee morale. But that being said, I wouldn't say that there was anything really innovative about what I was doing.
2: Can I ask you a question? Because uh, so... No CD, no cover letter. So, would they just ask a series of questions and they would just respond? It
1: was basically describe in your own words how you meet merit.
2: Were these people coming in from the outside or they were already internal?
1: They servants? were all in, in for, for, so I managed different types of process. Most of my energy was focused on internal staffing okay. for fishery officers, which okay. is a very clearly defined uh, line of work. And, okay. and yeah, so basically, what this, it turned into was that people, the employees were able to develop kind of a portfolio right. that they maintain over time. So they didn't have to restart applications from scratch every mm-hmm. time a vacancy would come along. They would just keep building the same portfolio over time, which the first time you build it is very demanding. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a big investment. We're talking two, three days of work, perhaps. But after that, it's maybe 15 minutes of work in a week. Uh, you finish a project, you add a line in your portfolio. And there, you're ready for the next process that comes along. Mm-hmm. So the employees really appreciated that.
2: I appreciate that.
0: I do too. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> so you spent a last a big part of the last year researching best practices and and maybe sort of uh, wrapping up a lot of this work that you've done in HR to something different. What are some of the lessons learned in innovative practices in staffing recruitment? Like, what did you discover?
1: Yeah, so uh, I was working for a separate agency that uh, is completely reviewing their 20-year-old staffing system. And I was uh, hired to join the small team, eight people, uh, really, really qualified people, smart people. Um, I was the only outsider on the team. So the only person who was not from that agency. And therefore, my supervisor has uh, the wisdom or the luck <laughs> to, uh, to assign me on looking outside the organization and identify the best practices, lessons learned, innovative practices in the area of staffing and recruitment. So I did that for um, the better part of last summer, um, 2018. I went to, I interviewed about 100 people from, uh, mostly from the federal public service, but including not only the core administration, but crown corporations, separate employers. And I also ventured beyond that. So I met with a few people from uh, provincial government, municipal administration, and private sector. And they were, uh, there were semi-structured interviews. Uh, basically I outlined what I was looking for, but gave the interviewee complete freedom in taking the conversation where they wanted it. And I came back tried and tried to make sense of the result and, uh, then, uh, uncovered the patterns that were emerging. And again, not a lot of innovation going on in the HR world. Uh, but what I came across instead were some, a handful of, what I call positive deviance. A few bold thinkers that are That's doing. That's
2: my nickname.
1: <laughs> <laughs> people that are taking a new approach to old problems. And just in looking at the demographic of this little group of bold thinkers. So I would say out of uh, over a hundred people that I interviewed, no more than 10 would fit in that category. Uh, and actually, in fact, some of those 10 work together in c- little clusters. And then when they split up after three years of working and they go in, in, uh, in different organizations, they pollinize these other organizations. But many of them had worked together previously. So maybe 10% of bold thinkers and asking them about their background, it was also a bit striking to notice that half of them didn't come from an HR background. Mm. They were either business consultant, uh, organization development specialist. Uh, I remember one was a recruiter, so not your typical HR person, but you could see how her background as a recruiter really shaped how she was as an HR executive. And basically, she was strongly focused on the needs of the applicants, of the candidates, the new employees. That, that was her mindset, which differs slightly from what we see in HR. So that was a common pattern. And while I was asked to, uh, to uncover the best practices and lesson learned, I, 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 finished my written report by warning people against focusing too much on the best practices. One thing that I, that I think, um, best practices can have as, as a negative impact, if you want, is that it can, people tend to abdicate thinking. They said, Oh, we're just going to copy that practice without putting thought into it. And in fact, the best practice might have worked for an organization because it was, it made sense in that context. And maybe it was a blend of a few different best practices that made the whole, the whole work. I also warned people against, uh, fads and big shiny objects and jump, uh, jumping to solution, finding quick, quick, quick solution, quick fixes and ultimately i was i personally definitely was more interested in the thinking that went behind some of those best practices than the best practices itself perhaps i can give one example that i've uh, that i've repeated uh, to on many platforms but one of the big problem that hr folks working in staffing and recruitment deal with is uh, whether to pool or not to pool. (laughs) 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 And pool is often approached as being the solution to most problems. HR love pool, but when you talk to applicants, applicants hate pools. What? And managers are not sold to the idea either. Uh, They don't actually don't care whether the, the person they're hiring comes from a pool or not. All they care is about having qualified people really fast. So I, I I I contrasted the practices of two organizations, two crown corporation, in fact, federal crown corporation, and they both look at the problems of the pool and observe the same things, yet came to different solutions. So in one organization, the director of HR uh, looked at the numbers and he said, "Look, I know that out of any pool that I have, about thirty percent of the people in the pool get appointed." that means that 70% of the people in the pool never get a call. So odds are, statistically, if you are in a pool, you will not get a job, which is ridiculous. It it makes no sense when you think of it. And then he looked beyond that uh, because he realized, well, that 70% of people that will never get a call now lose faith in HR. It erodes the trust with management and it hurts the employer's brand. So he looked at the numbers and he figured, well, let's say that I'm creating a pool of 100 people 30 people will get a job, 70 will not. And to get to that pool of 100 people, I know from our past numbers that I've administered at least 300 interviews. And to get 300 people in interviews, I probably look at 3,000 resumes. He said, if I compile all the effort, the time, energy, and dollars that go into this, it makes no business sense. All this work to hire 30 people and alienate 70... (laughs) It makes no business sense. He said, as director of HR, I can come up with 12 different ways of hiring the 30 people you need without alienating anyone. Hmm. Then, so that, that organization moved away from pools. Mm-hmm. Then another organization took a different approach. They're everywhere in Canada. They have offices in the smallest communities. And they said, um, what they did is that they start creating a lot, a lot of pools because that organization has a good capacity when it comes to analytics, especially web analytics. And they're at a point when they they can even tell if I advertise a job on LinkedIn in this geographic market, I can reasonably expect to have 100 applicants in a seven-day period as 50% of the applicant will probably be qualified for the work. Therefore, if I, I'm only anticipating 50 jobs in this market, this, this area in the next two, three months, I should only post the job poster for seven days on LinkedIn in that market. And I will probably just get enough people in the pool to meet my needs for the next two, three months. So what happens is that everyone in the pool gets a phone call. Everyone mm. gets a job offer. Mm. If the people turn down the job offer a few times, then they are told, well, we're going to remove you th- from the pool, but don't worry. We'll run another pool in the future. There's always a need for, for these type of job. And, uh, so they took a completely different, different approach, but both employers observed the same problem. At your origin is that pools the way they are done right now they don't work mm. everyone hates them one decided to move away from it the others decided to embrace it
2: in a different in way. a
1: different way meaning some some conditions now when I share that practice with people typically the reaction I get is that uh, either people dislike the idea or. They don't want to put the, all the effort that goes into making pull work. So, ensuring that everyone will get a job offer and you, leveraging the analytics, it's too much work. So, they're actually not interested in changing the way things they, they do things. So, the, the, the many of the HR process are designed for HR owns convenience, yeah. in fact, rather than to serve the managers or, uh, I could the not candidates. agree with you more. Yeah. Definitely.
2: Can I ask you, um, so in that first group that moved away from the pool uh, method, uh, what, do you know what direction they went in?
1: Uh, yes, they, they went towards uh, headhunting, uh, targeted recruitment, uh, that sort of thing. Okay. Yeah.
2: It's very interesting.
0: I stumbled across some of your results and your findings from this on YouTube, which actually surprised me uh, and then didn't surprise me because I've known you for some time. But so within that project, you really, that that's a really new uh, and different way of sharing this information across the public service. So can you tell us a little bit about that? How did you come to to do that and, and how did you get it to stick? How did you yeah. land that really?
1: So for those who don't know me, um, I like to think that I'm probably one of the first blogger in the public service. So I started blogging about my work uh, back in 2005. And by two thousand six seven, I was an an active blogger, publishing weekly, and uh, so it was something that I was familiar with. So when I was mandated with uh, this project in that for that separate employer to look into best practices and and lessons learned in staffing and recruitment, I knew from the get go that I would have to produce some kind of report by the end of my work. But I also know that almost no one today reads reported in their entirety. (laughs) So the thought of spending a month or two writing a report that no one will read didn't sit well with me. I knew that in order for the, the findings to stick, I need to package them in a very, very uh, dense, uh, way uh, quick something that you can listen to in a couple of minutes actually listen to or watch rather than read like a
2: podcast uh, like
1: a podcast <laughs> and initially this was my idea uh, however there's another person that I know a free that has a podcast that has such high production value that I thought I'm never going to be able to compete with Todd Lyons <laughs> <laughs> did you hear that Todd? did
2: I'm, you hear that
1: Todd? I'm blushing <laughs> <laughs> But I saw an opportunity to carve my own niche as well. And it was actually in a discussion on a Friday afternoon with another free agent that I realized, well, video blog is just one medium away from the podcast. And actually, the the, the video blog has a uh, a few added advantage. For example, I can resort to multiple way to convey a message, visual, auditive, uh, people see my body language. So... From that moment on, I was pretty set on creating the video blog. I just had to work out the format, but I knew that I was probably looking at two minute vignettes. Take one idea in a vignette and and expand on it. Very very, very specific, very targeted. So initially, I, I when I shared the ideas with my supervisors, they were on board, but they knew we would have to clear uh, a few things with communication and others and manage expectations. So we did that, and. Then something unexpected happened. I was working on the first s- s- series of vignettes. So I had recorded about seven and I had my kind of my uh, launch strategy planned, planned out. So I was, the plan was that in early December of 2018, I was going to launch and or publish an uh, initial seven vignettes on a Monday morning. And then for the following two weeks, every day, twice a day, I would publish another vignette. And then I was a plan. And when I, and I told my supervisor, this is coming, this is December 1st, uh, I'll be launching. And the very morning that I was supposed to launch at 6.30, I got an email from my supervisor telling me, don't publish anything. Senior management wants to review every video. And that was after three months of giving the heads up. that I was want to make sure
2: you were wearing clothes, you know.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so I, obviously I, I respected the request, but there was something a little um, particular about the, 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 the email in the sense that it was senior management. It was kind of vague. Uh, so when I ran into my supervisor that day at the office, I just asked, like, who exactly needs to see this? Can I get in touch with them? personally, and I will actually do him offline. Like no, I, I will not go through the formal channels. So the super told me who I had to, to run the idea by. And it was, uh, I'll, I'll share his name, Dave Conabry. Uh If you're on Twitter, Dave Conabry is very active on Twitter every day. He shares his uh, reading uh, at lunchtime. Uh, always, all, uh, He's an interesting person to follow. And Dave Conabry is a forward thinking person. And he has zero patience for bureaucracy. It's part of the pleasure of working for for him is that it's one of his mission in his life is to get rid of stupid bureaucracy. So uh, when I found out that uh, Dave had to uh, veto the or uh, approve the idea, I just tweeted him, and I said, "Dave, I've recorded seven videos. I'm planning this video this video blog." I'm aiming to launch next Monday. So I was delaying my launch plans by, uh, by a week. Have a look at the first few. I don't name the organization. I don't name any employee that I interview. I'm doing this as a free agent. I'll be using my personal email, uh, from as a free agent to, uh, to publish it. My talent managers, uh, within free agent has already approved the idea. Neil Bauer, who's kind of the champion of the free agent program is already talking to people that this video blog is coming out. So no need to worry there. And. By the end of that evening, I think eight o'clock that night, I get a tweet back from uh, Dave Connerby and says, "It's in." I looked at the first three video, love it. I have no objection. Glad to have you on the team. It was that simple.
2: Amazing. So I I think much better than a briefing note.
1: Much better than a briefing (laughs) note. But the the lesson learned there uh, is that I mean, video blogs have existed since two thousand five, I think. So the video blog is nothing new, but it was perhaps the first one in the public service. So it was a novel idea. In that sense, and it was a novel idea, and it there's no demonstrated value yet because it's the first. And I think, to some extent, I had to convince people that yes, there is a value in conveying a message in this format, in this uh, in uh, in this way. Uh, the proof is now: uh, the the video blog has got uh, almost nine thousand views by now.
0: And it was also tweeted by the head of the Public Service Commission as uh, something really interesting that all people involved in staffing should be looking at.
1: In fact, yeah. uh, That is is definitely a barometer for success. This video blog was produced nights and weekends. I bought $200 of equipment to do it in my living room uh, because I knew that it's it's the only way it's going to get done. And part of the motivation for doing it is that I am after a certain type of reaction. I, I hope to make an impact. And I kind of knew the feeling that I was uh, after, but until you start getting the, the emails back and the feedback, you you don't know if your if your intuition is correct or not. So I launched the video blog on a Monday morning around eight o'clock. When I launched it at eight o'clock, I had worked 22 hours straight on editing the vignettes and, uh, and, cause I had never published anything on YouTube before. So everything was a learning experience. Everything took twice the amount of time <laughs> that I, that I had anticipated. So by eight o'clock, Monday morning, December 17th, I sent an email out. The, the video blog is now available. And 12 hours later, about eight o'clock that evening, Patrick Borbe. Sends me an, an email saying, it sent." I'm um, on to the ninth episode by now, so he had already watched almost half of it on the first day, and, and he was
2: binge watching. He was binge watching. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I could picture him
1: uh, <laughs> in Most his living room binge watch Game of Thrones.
2: <laughs> but you know. <laughs>
1: But the feedback from coming from the president of the public service commission was very encouraging. And I said, well, if I'm getting his attention and if he wants to support the initiative and talk about it, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on the right track. So I kept pushing for it. That being said, I had really high expectation of how much, how many views it might get. The result is way, way, way below my initial expectations. Uh, cause I sent it to almost every person who works in staffing and recruitment in the public service. And looking at the numbers, I can tell you that about only less than 300 people in the entire public service have watched the entire series hmm. end to end, less than 300. And the most viewed video has been seen about 1,300 times, which is the first one. And then when I look at the stat, I see with every video, there's fewer people that look at the videos, except for two videos or three, actually, which is a bit indicative of where the interest is gained back. And those two videos that got slightly more views than they they should were the one on about whether to pool or not. So the topic I was discussing earlier and the other was advertised versus non-advertised, which to me is an indication that people are still very much thinking within the constraints of the system rather to think about bold solution beyond those constraints.
0: Hmm. It's very interesting. So all kind of leads into uh, something which we like to affectionately call Moneyball, which I believe is your current work right now. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yes, Project Moneyball. Project Moneyball came about, um, so while I was doing these 100 interviews last year, there, there was a question that I systematically asked to every interviewee. And I asked them, what is in, on your radar right now? what are you paying attention to that you know that if you don't start doing very soon in five years from now you will will no longer be competitive as an employer and three people, three of the bold thinkers actually mentioned quality of hire how to define it and how to measure it and its natural successor predictive hiring and because the idea was mentioned by these three bold thinkers and no one else <laughs> it it struck a chord with me. I I, I paid attention to it. And in the end, it only got one sentence in my video blog and one line in the written report, but it was always in the back of my mind. And then one day I was reading the book, Work Rules by Laszlo Buck, who uh, was the lead recruiter at Google, who still is, I think. And when I uh, stumbled across uh, chapter five of the book, I was blown away. I said this is what I want to do. And that chapter 5 talks about predictive hiring and all the things Google has tried over the year to improve their hiring methods. And there's a mention in the in the book, the chapter about Moneyball, the book and the movie. I had seen Moneyball so I went back to it and now I was rewatching the movie with a, with a different lens. And it struck me how every scene where you see the The baseball scouts talking about which baseball player they should be hiring reminded me of how staffing is done in the public service. And in in the sense that it's just gut feeling based on nothing. And what predictive hiring wants to do is uh, look at data, look at empirical evidence to base hiring decision. And actually look at past trends and what the evidence says about the relationship between qualifications or skills and what makes great performance to better focus the energy and hire more people that do the type of things that lead to great performance. So for example, in um, in Moneyball, one of the things that they look at is uh, despite the fact that batting average is easy to measure and it's been tracked for Decades, maybe a hundred years. Batting average is no indicator, no predictor of a win for a team. The best predictor of a win for a team is players who walk to base. And mm. that's how the Oakland Ace were initially able to assemble a team of players who are just really skilled at walking to base, <laughs> which does, doesn't mean that they are good ball player. That this doesn't mean that they hit home runs. It doesn't mean that they run fast. But ultimately, they walk to base, and that creates points for the team, and points create wins, and wins create championship. <laughs> hmm. and, and that will be one of the first challenge with uh, Moneyball for the public service. It will be how to define what's a win in the public service for the organization, for the business unit, for the team, for the individual. That will be the first challenge. I, I wouldn't even know where to start with that. Yeah. Uh, for some type of jobs, for some line of businesses, there might be indicators, metrics that are, are useful to determine. For example, if you look at someone who's working in a call center, there's an easy way to determine if they're effective at what they do. You look at the number of calls they take and the satisfaction of the callers. Those two metrics are pretty objective. They represent good service. So now the only question you need to answer is what are the skills that lead to these two things? There's a lot of literature in uh, industrial psychology or industrial psychology publications about that. Google has shared much of their findings. Uh, they haven't shared the entire recipe, but they have at least shared some of the ingredients and then there's been a bit of research done in the public service as well uh, about that, looking at the future skills of work and those that um transcend jobs and time. So there's there's I already have something to start working from, but now it's about building a project around it. And the entire project will be composed of small experiments, most likely.
2: Okay, so you're still at the beginning stages. I'm
1: at the very beginning. Okay. So it's the unknown. It's one of the beauty of the project. So I think this is as close as I'll ever work to true innovation. The challenge is that I have almost nothing to base the work on. The beauty is that any discovery I make is something more that we know now than we knew before. So there's almost no way to fail at it. The worst is is that I, I test a number of hypotheses and none of the hypotheses are demonstrated. But that alone would be a finding in itself.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I have quite a few questions here. So I recently saw this, this video from Google talking about how they're trying to remove bias yes. from their recruitment process. And I was actually disappointed because it looked like the direction that they were going was more of the public service direction for, for recruiting, which was that more detached system the inter like the objective, really staying within that objective, personality-less, humanless type of way to to sort of interview candidates and sort of go through candidates. And I could see their reasoning for the bias portion, how it works, but being in the public service for so long and seeing the recruitment process of of the public service, all I kept on going to is that, the, oh my God, that's such a shame. Because there's all these negative aspects to that process because you're removing the, the ability to sort of assess somebody um, as a human being. Like When I think back when I was working in, in the private sector with small businesses, I worked uh, for a period in doing recruitment and training and things like that. And I remember at one point thinking to myself, I know within a minute whether I'm going to hire somebody. I'm talking to them and I know right away. Or I know what, that I'm not going to hire them. And it takes a lot for that to sort of change. Is that me being biased or is that part of being able to assess somebody's work ethic, personality, their soft skills? There was one saying that we used to work, that we used to talk about a lot, which was always hire for personality and train for skill. Because if you have the right attitude and the right personality, you can pretty much train them to do anything and they will be a success. So leading me to, I guess, beyond 2020, are are you familiar with that right now? So the new public service renewal initiative, and they're looking to, they're looking at mindsets and behaviors and how to change mindsets and behaviors in the public service. So I guess I'm asking you, what role do you see that playing? In what you're doing possibly
1: so the one mindset and behavior that we need to change in in staffing in the public service is to remove gut feeling decisions and resort to evidence and if I can contrast the two example that you give uh, your experience in the private sector knowing that within the first minute whether you're gonna hire this person or not versus what Google is doing is actually one of the most documented case of Bias. Mm-hmm. It is demonstrated that uh, hiring decisions are made in the first four minutes, mm-hmm. and the rest fifty-six minutes of the inter- one-hour interview are spent convincing yourself that you already mm-hmm. just to confirm the decision you've already made.
2: I never regretted any of my decisions, so <laughs> just FYI. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but this is precisely what Google, why why Google is taking a different approach. They're depersonalizing the the thing. They're formalizing the way information is captured. Uh, hiring managers are not even. Interviewing the people that uh, they're they're selecting, and that's kind of that's also the way I used to do it on the west coast uh, at fisheries. The hiring manager was not part of the assessment. It was. uh, Are we uh,
2: saying that's a good thing?
1: (laughs) I think for collecting the information, Uh the evidence, I think it's a good thing, and and then you leave the manager make his own decision with the information you present. But the information that is collected is collected in an objective way. There's no bias. If I, if I decide to that you're, you would be a good employee or not, has no bearing on me because I'm not going to be supervising you. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm really focused on on what I need to to identify, uh, uncover from the interview the, uh, the the merit criteria, and then I will produce a recommendation to the manager. But manager retains the final authority over the hire.
0: That's really interesting. I think to <clears throat> what you just said, Val, about never having regretted a hire that you made. But the question I would ask you is how would you know? Because you have no way when of knowing suck. the people who you <laughs> didn't hire, how they might have performed, right? And I think that's a little bit about what predictive hiring is, is yep. finding out the, 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 the false negatives and the false positives, if you will, around that. So what are those characteristics that you base your gut feeling on? Or what are those criteria right. that you base that gut feeling on? And if you can actually turn that into evidence-based – then maybe that that's a game changer and helps you change that mindset or that behavior. Yeah. Not you personally. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah helps no. one, I should say. Yeah.
2: Well, and it, but as long as we have a metric for that lens, do you know what I mean? Because right now, or what we've been using up until now removes that lens completely.
1: And again, it's, there's one, this little, one little step that we need to do with predictive hiring that is a bit counterative or goes against what the way we've done staffing traditionally is you need to start with the N in mind. You need to be clear about what mm-hmm. makes great performance. Mm-hmm. Once you identify that, then you work your way back. It's not the other way around. It's not looking for some qualifications without knowing if whether they lead to performance or not.
2: Well, and I think that's part of the problem because we haven't been able to quantify and we haven't been able to really define what a, a productive and effective mindset is that makes an employee successful. Yeah. So we just ignore that assessment por- portion.
1: Yeah, so, so th- th- that's, um, th- th- there's a vignette that I produced on the video blog. Uh, I think it's number 19, mm-hmm. one of the last one. Uh, look it up. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's about uh, using data and changing mindsets. And bring that evidence-based decision making into the into staffing and recruitment and HR as a whole. It's a big shift we we must do. Yeah,
2: wonderful, interesting. What useful lessons would you have to share with the public service entrepreneurs or innovators in all your learnings and all your experience?
1: Yeah, well, for entrepreneurs, uh, one thing that I can think of is try to spot the opportunities. Train yourself to spot the opportunities. And what makes a great opportunity for an innovative idea to implement must address a real business problem. Some people have a wonderful idea, but they don't really address a problem that is pressing for the hiring managers. So that would be uh, probably the first thing to do. In selling an innovative ideas to a manager, an organization, it's not always easy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) obviously. And f- if I put myself in the shoes of uh, a manager, it is a very simple explanation why they're not going to be sold on the idea immediately, especially if they need to take much of the risk that would come along with a failure without getting much of the benefit. So you need to find a balance between the two. It's actually kind of h- how I negotiated my uh, my video blog uh, doing it is that ultimately... I took all the burden on myself. If I fail, if, uh, if it, it is met with, uh, with a, with a backlash, it's all on me. You, my supervisor, my managers are, are not named anywhere. You are, you're not part of this. However, if I succeed, I get all the credit, 100% of it. So <laughs> the main, the mitigating measure was, uh, was designed purposefully in, in that sense. Um, but it, I, I can't imagine myself going to managers and saying, hey, I got this great idea. I need uh, your money to do this project. If it fails, it's all on you. And if it succeeds, I'm going to take the glory. No, no, no <laughs> managers will sign up for that. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. It, it, this, this is something that you need to, to balance. Uh, and every situation will be will be unique. Another thought for entrepreneurs looking at the literature from entrepreneurship and startups is one of the things that make an entrepreneur successful is their willingness to kill their darlings. So they start with a great idea. They prototype it. They start testing it, releasing the product in the, on the market. And then there are a few early adopters and they provide feedback. And if they like it and the the product catches, um, catches up in popularity, the, the second wave of customers that come in might have different expectations for the for what would be a good product, and the entrepreneur must make a decision: Do I change my original idea to meet a bigger demand in the market and be su- have a successful business, or do I stick to my original idea at all costs and just focus on that little niche market that I identified earlier? And I observe some initiatives, some great ideas in the public service, and I can see a similar challenge: the reluctance sometimes to evolve. Mm-hmm. the idea when it should. when And, and perhaps it, it's it's a more a question that I ask, but perhaps it's part of the reason why um, we're not so good at scaling is because we don't evolve the original ideas to meet a uh, larger demand. Another thought that, that, that I would have is uh, for the entrepreneurs and uh, any innovative idea is there's a gap between a product or a service is needed and where we are certain enough that it will be risk-free or that it will succeed. And it, it boils down to risk. For example, with predictive hiring, uh, right now, uh, we don't need it immediately. But I have limited thoughts or ideas about how I'm going to approach this because it's unproven. Mm-hmm. But I know for sure that if we don't start working on it now, in five years, 10 years from now, it will be too late. In five years, ten years, we'll be able to just copy what others have been done, but we need to start working on it right now. So it's, it's how can we reconcile the the timing of when the idea is needed and uh, the certainty about its success? And lastly, there, there's some literature that t- talks about uh, why some companies have developed a culture of innovation, why they have a, a track record of releasing innovative product. And the literature points to a number of factors, but one of those factors is that the organizations where the individual, the emphasis is put on the individual rather than the organization, tend to be more innovative versus the organization where the institution or the organization trumps the individuality of its uh, of its members. And perhaps I'm looking at the public service, but it's clear in my opinion that we don't perhaps value the individuality of the people or the small teams uh, or the smaller business units, uh, less Kool Aid. Yeah. <laughs> so perhaps it's one thing that we can start, uh, improving, uh, p- p- putting, giving people a bit more freedom mm-hmm. to show their individuality, bring their ideas to the table, even if it goes a bit against the grain of, uh, what, what else is happening in the organization. Uh, the good news is that, in my opinion, the, when it comes to innovation, uh, in the public service, the bar is so low. <laughs> <laughs> right now
2: Tell which us you really in, feel. in a way it's
1: discouraging but it, you can also turn this into a, an empowering idea the bar is really low it's too bad which means that even the the smallest ideas can make an impact mm-hmm. and so
2: d- d- i just want to uh probe that a little bit why do you say the bar is so low
1: I have a basis of comparison. Look, <laughs> 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 going back to uh, where we began at the, at the start of this podcast, but, uh, in the private sector, they I think they have a slightly different approach. That being said, there are some really smart people in the public service. I'm not talking, uh, about that. Some, some really bright ideas, but it's about the incentives to do something with these ideas mm. and, um, and weighing the risk.
2: Thank you. Thank you very much, Etienne. You're thank welcome. you for joining us today. This has been very enlightening. Any final thoughts beyond your, your wonderful, insightful advice?
1: Risk it all. <laughs> <laughs> Short and sweet. Done. <laughs> I love it. Done.
2: All right. Thank you.
3: You've been listening to Innovate On Demand, brought to you by the Canada School of Public Service. Our music is by Grapes. I'm Todd Lyons, producer of this series.